Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. For this episode, I am releasing another interview from our other podcast project, Infinite Block. This one is with Laura Fox, General Manager of the City Bike Bike Sharing Program in New York and Senior Director of Lyft Bikes. She is someone who I've had on the podcast earlier, and you may recall her from episode 82. Well, in this episode, I go wide about the implications of micromobility on the city and also new forces of disruption. Calling upon her background at Sidewalk Labs and consulting on the interplay of regulations and housing supply in Mexico City with Alain Batard with whom she edited the amazing book and one of my favorites, Order Without Design. As we explore these topics of how cities and technology interact, Laura is in my mind one of the best people to talk to about how that has manifested. I hope to be able to bring her on again soon. In the meantime, I would like to personally invite you to come and join us in Amsterdam for the Micromobility Europe conference on June 1st and 2nd of 2022. We're expecting nearly a thousand attendees from hundreds of companies representing the cutting edge of lightweight electric vehicles, including some companies that are in stealth, but who've shown me their wares and I cannot wait to have on the podcast. Finally, before we dig into content, I want to thank our sponsor for the episode, Joyride. Joyride's SaaS platform powers every point of the micromobility journey, from vehicle selection to turnkey software to extensive resources. As one of the world's first micromobility platforms, Joyride's shared mobility customers span more than 200 global markets and thousands of multimotor vehicles. These micromobility operators, no matter their size, are on a fast-tracked road to profitability with Joyride's low-cost operating platform, exclusive hardware deals, and industry hand-holding through obstacles like insurance, RFP writing, and data compliance. And now, the Joyride team is taking their micromobility know-how on the road to host the first ever Joyride Academy experience. This one-of-a-kind, hands-on workshop is made entirely for micromobility operators and it is being held on June 1st as part of Micromobility Europe. They'll be covering financing, advanced operational efficiencies, data-driven insurance, and hosting a fireside chat with some of the industry's biggest players. If you're managing or thinking of managing a micromobility fleet, this is the place to be on June 1st. The best part? The Joyride Academy experience is completely free to Micromobility Europe ticket holders. So register today and head over to our blog to see how to sign up for the workshop before spaces fill up. And with that, here's Laura. Let's go. Welcome back to the Infinite Block. It is a pleasure to have Laura Fox with us today. How are you going today, Laura? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Again, when we thought about doing the infant block, you were like the first person that I thought I was like, I have to have you on just because the conversation that we had when we were doing the micromobility podcast was so far reaching and so much more than just micro that given your background, I just thought you'd be perfect person to kind of explore a lot of the topics that we're really aiming for on this. So pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Well, look, I want to really, for some folks, they will have been introduced to you. They know who you are from the micromobility podcast, but for the edification of new listeners. Can we can mm-hmm. we just go through your background again? Because it's it's so interesting and so diverse. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, on that note, I'm not sure the background expected for someone in my role, but I didn't start out as a traffic engineer or a planner or know exactly what I wanted to do. And I've certainly never had a 10-year plan. <laughs> Instead, I've let my interests really shape my next steps and kind of couldn't be happier in the role that I have today that really helps drive impact for cities, climate, and people. So about me, I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a transportation desert. So grew up thinking a lot about how long it took to get places, how long it took to wait for a bus for you know a long period of time to get to a train that was far away. But as a young adult, you know my attraction first the city started in thinking about community development and how cultural organizations really affected placemaking and economic development and people and how they thought about themselves and their personal identities. So I read a lot about that in Chicago and it took me to Qatar where I ended up working for the Qatari Museums Authority, which was thinking through national and urban strategy through culture. It's transformative for me personally. I'd never traveled much outside of the country, outside of studying abroad in Italy when I was in college. Mm. And it led me to ask a lot of questions, right? You know, how effective can top-down strategy be for a city? What does deep community development look like or doesn't look like? And as I was walking around Qatar, you know, I kept being struck you were, by... You were ambitious to walk around Qatar. <laughs> we were both yeah. there around the same time. It's a hard city to walk around. <laughs> it's a hard city to walk around in. I didn't have a car, <laughs> so I was doing a yeah, lot well. of walking. Yeah, and colleagues from the Museum's Authority would oftentimes stop and beep at me <laughs> and be like, what are you doing? <laughs> Get in my car. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm fine, fine. I'm enjoying myself even. <laughs> But yeah, but part of that is because, and this led to a lot of my reflections, right? There's no sidewalks. It's a hostile place to be a pedestrian. There's, you know, very limited slash no public transportation, no affordable housing, you know, lacking human rights. And it really made me come back to, you know, what I'll call my Chicago or urban roots and say what is really necessary to make a city great. And transportation and housing are a big part of that. So spent some time in Bangladesh after that doing some work with Brock and more kind of urban redevelopment and some slum related work and then went to NYU for my MBA to work with their urbanization project, which is embedded in the, the business school there. And one of the most significant projects I worked on with urbanization project was for Mexico City rethinking their affordable housing strategy through market driven strategies and approaches. And I worked with Lon Berto, who I know that we both admire quite a bit and then two yep. classmates and happy to get into that project and some of those insights more later but that started a great working relationship with Alon where post MBA you know I went and worked for the Boston Consulting Group where I was doing a lot of technology strategy but also urban strategy so I worked with groups like Bloomberg Philanthropies rethinking some of their urban innovation strategies worked with corporates on their mobility strategies and on the weekends, I was editing Alon's book, Order Without Design, which he'd been working on for about 17 years and truly is yeah. a great work by, you know, someone so thoughtful in the field, it's 40 years working at the World Bank. Totally. And for folks who are kind of new to this and, and haven't come across Order Without Design, it is probably my favorite urbanism book. 
And it's not really even an urbanism book. It's more like it explains, you know, cities in a really practical, down-to-earth way that's not about the sort of, as you say, top-down design. It's a how do cities form? And then what are the most important parts of a city and how do you think about that? And what should policymakers be thinking rather than, you know, and having effectively urban economists and planners talk to each other because oftentimes yeah. <laughs> they haven't. Planners are like, hey, this is how I want to build a city because I think this is how it should be or this is the latest fashion rather than necessarily like, no, a city exists because... There are agglomerations of, of labor markets, et cetera. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the economists yeah. 10 years later are like, you know, nice plan, but you totally messed up and here's what happened and it's too late. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. So I took all of those experiences and then went and worked at Sidewalk Labs, which now a former Alphabet portfolio company that was focused on kind of bringing best of urbanism and technology to thinking about big urban problems and led the master innovation development plan there, and then came to Lyft to be the general manager for City Bike, where I oversee strategy, growth, operations, marketing, and our public-private partnership with the city, along with a great team. And then outside of work, I teach an MBA strategy class at NYU and, and have for a while. I'm on the board of Governors Island here in New York that really focuses on climate change, and then mentor and advise a lot of early stage mobility companies. Yeah, so as everyone can hear, this is why I wanted to have Laura on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because talk, if, as we think cities, about it, like yeah, land use, transportation, yeah. they're so commingled, <laughs> right? It's really... totally they are. I mean, obviously, you're at City Bike, and I want to start there. You know, it's that wider context of how do we think about cities? Why are they an interesting model, and why in the sort of tech? thinking about sort of like the age of exponential tech, why are cities like so integral and why are they so broken? You've been kind of really nudging it from lots of different ways about how to hopefully make something, things work. I'm looking forward to unpacking it, but I want to start with City Bike. So it's obviously a novel way of accessing high-performance city vehicles, even if they're not framed in that way. You know, getting it across Bicycle the city is in an e-bike is like... Vehicle. That's right, baby. <laughs> we, we <just> need to <laughs> when you're in congestion, it's high-performance. Exactly. We just need yeah. to start spending millions of dollars on TV and Super Bowl ad campaigns to convince people. <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. But obviously, it's highly dependent on government interventions for things like street space allocation and funding. And so can you talk us through, obviously I want to, like city bike is a really interesting model, like as far as I can tell, not super common in a lot of cities, certainly in the way that shared micromobility has rolled out, it's very different to a lot of those models. Um, so can you take us through like the business model and then just how, you know, obviously how it's performed so far? Yeah, of course. And I thought I'd just start with a little bit of context on city bike too, for those who might not be familiar and even those who are based in you know the US and have ridden city bike often I think it's sometimes surprising so first city bike it is part of Lyft you know Lyft you know intends to deliver the world's best transportation and bike scooters are an integral part of doing that in dense urban environments we're in the middle of a hundred million dollar expansion so you know dramatically doubling the size of the city bike service area one of our partners at DOT called it the fastest growing transportation transportation network that New York City has ever seen. <laughs> so I'll take their word on that, right? When you think about, <laughs> I haven't gone and traced history of the subway and others, but when you think about that kind of fixed infrastructure and how you build a system, it seems pretty believable to me too. Totally. I mean, it's also competing against, what is it, the first, is it the first avenue or second avenue subway, which <laughs> took like 20 years and, and a couple of billion dollars and still right. like, I don't know, is it right. now open? Right. No, but it wasn't open for so long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, you know, costs a billion dollars a mile to your point too to entrench yep. even for the few stops we've added. Yeah, and then when you think about just the scale, that's also sometimes surprising. So last year alone, we did 
28 million rides and had about 1.3 million unique riders. I love benchmarks. I constantly think about what does that mean? So within the context of Lyft, for example, City Bike had 40% of Lyft's commute hour rides last year. So really occupies a pretty substantial part of the Lyft portfolio in New York. When you think about other micro-mobility companies, City Bike is part of a broader portfolio. We had 28 million rides across the portfolio. We had 45 million rides last year. Bird had 40 million. So, you know, Lyft really does play a substantial role in the ecosystem. And third, and kind of most importantly, you know, I really think of bike share as a transportation network. And so with City Bike Scale, we think about City Bike in the context of if City Bike were a public transportation system in the US, how would it compare in terms of ridership? And City Bike would be the 25th largest across the United States which is wild. Wow. One, I want more people riding public transportation, <laughs> right? But two, <laughs> yes. but two, it does speak to oftentimes the bias that's brought into a conversation of like, oh, you know, people won't really ride bikes, right? Or we really can't get a mass of people riding bikes. We can, right? If we build the right kind of system and have the right kind of infrastructure to do so. Yeah. yeah, that question, right? Like, how do you build it so that it, it does have that adoption? Because I think what we proved with shared micromobility is that there is a demand for on-demand, the ability to like walk out of somewhere, find an easy thing, and then quickly do a short trip because most right. trips are short trips. So especially within a city context. And yet your model is so different from, you know, most other shared micromobility operators operate on a permit system, whereas you've, you know, you're a lot more integrated into government. Can you talk us through how that yeah, part sure. works? We have a deep partnership with New York City's Department of Transportation, and part of that is embedded into kind of the history of City Bike and the Department of Transportation's advocacy for it from the beginning. So the Department of Transportation commissioner at the time, Jeanette Sadek-Khan, went to London and visited and, and used the London bike share system, now Santander, and loved it. It was like, we have to have this for New York. This is an incredible system brought the idea back, talked to a number of private operators, put out an RFP, and even helped do things like find early sponsorships for the system, knowing that, you know, that was needed to make it kind of viable and a great system. And so it's been kind of embedded in that way into the agency. There's a, a bike share team that's dedicated to working on projects. And that's really important in terms of that relationship and aggregate and that you know, cities need long-term reliable partners when it comes to mobility and transportation. And then our relationship with the Department of Transportation is critical and essential to the scale that we've been able to reach and, you know, helping New Yorkers get around. Some specifics mm. of that partnership to get into that part, we're a fully private company. And so we don't have public subsidies as part of that or payments from the city to operate. But we do have a contract that sets out roles, responsibilities, service level agreements, and things like that. And on the public side, you know, there's a, a number of things that the city leads on that I think have really led to some of the critical successes of the program. First, station density. So anywhere you are within the city bike network, you're no more than five minutes away from a city bike station, and stations are sized to reflect demand. So that means that if you're in a busy commercial area or a business district or, you know, high density residential neighborhood, your station is going to be larger than, you know, something that's maybe in a highly residential, smaller neighborhood. Second, that network is also designed to ensure that transit connections can occur. And so, again, we have higher density, more docks, more bikes near transit connections and have seen through our 
with multimodal report that, you know, 70% plus city bike riders use city bike to connect to transit at different points during their journey over time. And then third, I think is a, you know, a city's commitment to general public infrastructure. So bike lanes, <laughs> I think, <laughs> right? Yeah, it seems so simple. And yet it's it's such a hard one. Like when you, when you go to a city and you say, hey, look, so, you yeah. know, there are these node points between, you know, that there's a lot of people who ride between these points and yet trying to get yeah. cycle lanes in any other system become really yeah. challenging. And it's, and it's one of these things that, you know, Horace and I spent a lot of time obviously on micromobility talking about how do you incentivize and build out infrastructure. I, I love the model that you have in city bike because the agency that builds the bike lanes is itself the one that's kind of bought into the right. success of the system it's not just some permit operator who's you know oh hey cool we'll yeah. put down some scooters but it's actually like, no 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 no. this is an integral part yeah. of the transport system the, the one part that i do want to ask on the end of that is going i assume nobody's going to try kill it at this point <laughs> maybe i'm wrong but the sense would be that you know if new york decided to get really serious and said you know this is integral to us being able to achieve our climate change goals which is what a lot of cities now around the world are saying now like we recognize that local bodies are incredibly important for driving climate change action and they said yeah we were going to do this and they doubled down and they said we're going to take this very seriously as in like give you all the money you want and you just go hell for leather do you think that that would work that there would be sufficient buy-in from the populace and or things around street space reallocation and it actually could happen or is this a you know it has to be very slow and it has yeah. to take a long time i think it could happen i mean there are still to your point i would say people are largely bought in there will be nimbius not in my backyard is <laughs> wherever you are and we still get complaints that city bike is taking parking spaces and newer areas that we expand to despite having data that city bike is less than 0.3% of curb space across the service area that we're in. You see the same argument being repeated related to open restaurants and open dining, which are less than a half a percentage of curb space across the city and generate hundreds of thousands of jobs, right? And still, you know, individual owners will complain. So I think that that's a fact of you know doing work in cities where we don't have the curb priced and paid for but aside from that when you look at just the scale and size of city bike right 1.3 million riders advocates others really bought into the system i think that's evident that that could be there if we're looking at how could those dollars be diverted and where are the dollars coming from i think that that becomes an interesting conversation because we would love city bike is obviously in the middle of a massive expansion right now in terms of doubling the size of our service area we call that our phase three expansion because we've had a a number of others prior to that and if we look at what a phase four expansion could look like to not only get to you know 60 percent of new york city's population where we'll be today to say 70 percent or 80 percent you know we would need to go to lower density parts of the city right we wouldn't be able to balance that with the core of the service area And so what would subsidies look like for that, maybe to an operator, but especially to building supporting infrastructure like bike lanes as well, right? How people get from point A to point B, how comfortable they feel is incredibly important. And as we've seen through the pandemic, unfortunately, there have been increases in car ownership in a lot of New York City's boroughs, right? And Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx have grown pretty exponentially, including truck traffic. And so... That support of infrastructure is incredibly important. And then there's also infrastructure elements yeah. like 
electrification of city bike stations, right, to ensure that for the parts of the street, the fleet that are electric, that they're being, you know, charged on site, we're reducing vehicle mile traveled for the fleet itself, and things like that. And so I think that there's a lot to do there. And then you could think about how, you know, the US is a little bit messy, right, in terms of there's local dollars, there's state dollars, there's federal dollars, federal can help on bike lanes, they could help on trenching costs, and things that, you know, had been part of acts like the Build Back Better Act, which unfortunately, you know, is, is no longer, <laughs> right? Included great yes. micro mobility <clears throat> subsidies. And so whether that gets done at a federal level or whether whether cities decide that they want to support that themselves, I think becomes another question. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just talk for a moment because of the part that I got incredibly excited about when we last chatted was around Mm -hmm. the e-bike performance, which you were just, you were just putting e-bikes into the system. So I know that that you probably have a lot better data, but like how do e-bikes transform that user experience for folks who are in that using city bikes? E-bikes have been incredibly transformational. I mean, people love them. We see them use three to four times more than the classic bikes in our fleet. We see, you know, for longer distances, especially across bridges. So if you're going between boroughs and New York, our e-bike fleet today is capped at 20%, but across boroughs, we're seeing ridership 63%. So anytime you're taking a bridge, 63% of the time you're taking an e-bike, which makes sense, (laughs) right? Someone who's going further, right? You're going more uphill. Wow. And then in aggregate across ridership, e-bikes are around 40% of ridership or more, depending on a week-to-week basis, again, while being 20% of the fleet. And so really seeing it as transformational from a what it allows in terms of kind of geography and access and kind of commuting to jobs. Our reduced fare bike share program, which is our program for low income riders, actually sees even higher e-bike ridership. So 45 percent, sometimes 50 percent. And so, again, thinking about jobs access through transportation network access across bridges. And, you know, when we do surveys of women or older folks or others see that having an e-bike as an option available to them, you know, was a reason why they joined. I think we can attribute, you know, the 40% growth in unique riders that we've seen year over year to the massive expansion in our e-bike fleet as well. Yeah. And how does the economics of that stack up on your side of the business? Like are those e-bikes, obviously you're being used twice as much. You are obviously generating more revenue, but the vehicles themselves are more expensive. Does it end up being a kind of net like, are they more valuable to you on the system than, than a standard bike? Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, I think a mix is important and will always be important. They end up being more valuable on an incremental basis. So, you know, they are more expensive from a kind of hardware perspective. They're more expensive to maintain and operate. As you can imagine, with those rides also become more repairs, more swaps and all of that. And then they do generate their own revenue. I think there was a question when we first launched e-bikes of, you know, why should City Bike charge incremental revenue on e-bikes <laughs> to begin with? And we said, like, yes, because yeah. it's a it's a premium product in some ways. And if we want to offer something that's better, right, we do need to kind of offset it on the business side and make sure that it works and that we can continue to add it and want to add more e-bikes and things like that. A colleague was recently telling me that in mm. Toronto, you know, the e-bike fleet, it's like, I think you can't charge for them. So they end up not getting made, but the provider is obligated to you know provide them. And so you have a bunch of e-bikes that aren't charged on the streets and aren't maintained well because you know the operator can't afford yeah. to maintain them. <laughs> right. And so I think those economic work financially and then understood to a rider are really important. Yeah. 
You were mentioning street space allocation and, cu- and curb space allocation. And, and, and I know that that was something that like when you were at Sidewalk Labs, like obviously maybe you can give a little bit of a context on Sidewalk. And the one project that I know that came out of Sidewalk was Cord. And, um, I've Cord, spent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I've spent a bunch of time talking to them, but I think that was a an interesting question of like how... You know, it was a Google-led project at the time, and they were really thinking about like how do you kind of infuse tech into the city operating system or, or or things like that. Can you take us through how you think they thought about it? Yeah, I mean, so Sidewalk started in 2015, and then just at the end of last year was rolled into and absorbed into Alphabet in terms of a number of the urban products, and so no longer is a standalone company, but throughout the period of time went through a number of different phases. So it first started as a, you know, probably big picture think tank and it published a book called like a yellow book, which was really thinking about, you know, what is it that we can do? What is it that we can imagine when we combine urbanists and technologists who really think about place and want to imagine and do better and have experience in city government, know some of the constraints and coming out of that, pivoted to being more of a urban incubator. And so from there, Ford spun out City Block Health, Umbrella, which is focused on elderly care, a number of other startups that are focused on how do you improve quality of life in cities. And then Sidewalk then transitioned again to saying, okay, these are solving big urban problems what if we do that and we also try to think about being this integrator of all of these ideas for a place and become the developer the technology integrator right and you know thinking through the financing arm and all of that and had we're working on a which was when i was there a big proposal for the city of toronto called a master innovation development plan to redevelop a large swath of toronto's waterfront which was incredibly exciting because as you can imagine, Toronto, like most cities, has a housing problem, has a transportation access problem, and has net zero emissions goals. You know, it has housing affordability goals in addition to just like general housing stock. And so imagining a place that can combine all of those, offer access to a waterfront that Toronto didn't have before, incredibly compelling. Was it an old shipyard? Is that what it was? Yeah, shipyards, industrial uses, things like that, some reclaimed land. Yeah. As far as I understand, that project died. Yeah. What went well there and what didn't go well? (laughs) And what was instructive, I guess? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I think about a lot is that, like, sometimes things can fail and result in good things for a broader ecosystem, even if disappointing for the team itself. One example, just to bring that to life, that's local to New York is, you know, New York applied for the or bid for the 2012 Olympics and put in a ton of work to try to make that happen for the city and to prepare for that kind of scale they needed to do things like rezoning large parts of the city to ensure more housing could be built planning a new subway line intervention and New York ultimately lost the Olympic bid but in return gained a lot from doing the preparation right so huge portions of the Brooklyn and Queens waterfront were developed A lot of residential housing was now built on the far west side. New public transit lines were put in. And so that kind of bid and that kind of big piece of work that was grounded in what does New York City need and how do we achieve these big obligations for the Olympics, achieve something in a short period of time that otherwise would have taken a long time to to see come to fruition. And I think of sidewalk sometimes in the same way. I think there is a huge scale and ambition of the ideas from the early incubator that spun out 
Ward and City Block and others to the development plan for Toronto, which, you know, was was pretty comprehensive in terms of thinking through district-wide energy systems to have net zero emissions and how to do that economically, a better way to use public data, new approaches to freight mobility, flexible housing, and a lot more. And I think a lot of the people, and I'm confident that a lot of the people who had worked there are going to go on to do great things. And that a lot of those ideas, which entrepreneurs, you know, mentioned to me today, like, hey, I saw this that Sidewalk was working on and inspired me to do this. And so I think there's a lot of good things that can come from the work that Sidewalk was doing. And then on the constructive side, I think there's two things that come to mind that probably feel relevant to most entrepreneurs out there too. First, which is focus, right? So, you know, we were trying to do a lot at Sidewalk with a fairly small team. We had about 100 people and that was across mobility, housing, buildings, public space, sustainability, economic development, social infrastructure, hard infrastructure, financing, and a lot more. And then we were also working on products that were both place-based, so an entire neighborhood in Toronto <laughs> to yeah. more place agnostic, right? You know, developing own products to attack really difficult urban problems. And just the, that scale and scope reflects the kinds of needs that cities have, right? And the problems that they have, but is really hard to achieve as like a single company trying to go after all of those areas. And so mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that's top of mind. And then the second theme, again, which I think is relevant for those who are looking to work with cities to kind of partner with city governments, is working with Canada is quite a different environment than working in the U.S. Canada is just structured quite differently. There's a great book on U.S. cities done by the Brookings Institute by Bruce Katz and Jennifer Bradley called Metropolitan Revolution. I'd recommend everyone here. It talks a lot about how U.S. cities are these second sectors and drivers of economic growth and development and have a lot of power in terms of decision making. And in Canada, that's just less so. Decision making is done through consensus at a local level, a provincial level and a federal level. And cities themselves at the local level have a lot less of that decision making power. And so it's a difficult Mm. system to manage. And especially when you're, you know, familiar with and comfortable with the relative power and decision-making rights that an average U.S. city has. And so, again, I just think it's a great lesson. You, you think about these, and I did a lot of this in business school too, right? These, how to think about global expansion and what are the things that are really important. And some of those, you know, governmental structure issues are really important within urban tech too. Yeah. Yeah. Working with government, I think, is going to be a perennial topic of this podcast. And we, we've had yeah. Bradley Tusk obviously on, but, you know, person I'm interviewing straight after this, as you know, is, is Ryan Johnson from Cul-de-Sac. And, you know, you can come along with a really cool idea, but until you're able to actually engage with politics and know how to, like, play that game, it's you can have the best tech in the world. It just won't get yeah. deployed. And so it's a really a, it's the game of understanding that that's actually the game. Yeah. you know yeah i agree that it's it's as much that as it is the hey cool we've got pots of money we've got google <laughs> backing us we've got all these things you know best tech in the world some like a really cool team and yet it needs to be more than that yeah 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 and and i mean i think that there were some headwinds too and that being part of google and alphabet had a lot of positives but it also had brought up some people were constantly concerned about like well how does google use people's data and would you be using public space data in the same way and 
you know, we developed an entire kind of civic data process and structure and how do you create open data practices and structures and security related to public data and, you know, had a really hard time rotating out of that, but you're part of Google. So you're just looking to steal Google's data. Totally, <laughs> totally. Well. Oh, I do remember when that came up. It was, yeah, it was part of that conversation. And then you think about it and you just go, wow, this is like a whole nother layer that you'd have to layer on, on top of any sort of standard real estate development that you might do in the first place. Yeah. So, hey, look, we want to do a proven an example of a proven car-free city, whatever it is, you have a lot of hoops to jump through to the point that it, you know, it, it does kind of get to the point that nobody builds it. I want to move on to Order Without Design because, again, as I mentioned, I do think it's the best book I've ever read on urbanism, and I really, I, 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 I think I it's wonderful. Well, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. Devin Zugel, who is an absolutely amazing writer, and again, one I hope to have on the podcast, has been doing a podcast series with Alain and his wife, which is just also fascinating conversations alan's just a dude he's like been everywhere and done everything and yeah he's, he has a best stories <laughs> so he's got great the, stories the next book i joke that he needs to work on is his, just his personal stories because order without design is like his professional life's work <laughs> but he's such a compelling storyteller yes. which you probably heard in those podcasts and can talk from yeah. you know being the first urban planner in yemen and you know conflicts versus to thailand to, totally yeah <laughs> He's really like the most interesting man in the world, you know, yeah. the, the, old, the old beer commercial. So, look, I mean, the thing that I really got from that was that cities can build up complex regulations over time. And that there's a whole range of reasons why that's the case. You certainly have like a, in specific cases, build up of like rentier classes or whatever. And that deregulation, especially around things like zoning and building codes can really unlock cities to be more responsive to their citizens. And, and I know that that was the work that you were doing with him in Mexico, and he obviously cites that, mm. cites that in the book. Do you think that's a fair assumption around that? And if that's the case, then like, is flexibility that something that a city should really be aspiring towards? Yeah, I think that that's a pretty f- fair assumption. And there's some nuance I'll share too, maybe around where some tightening of regulations is, is helpful as well, but at a different level than is oftentimes pursued. I, I think to your point, and you mentioned this earlier, core to order without design as a book is that cities are markets. They're markets of jobs, of housing, and so much more. And so concepts like aggregate supply and aggregate demand are incredibly important concepts when thinking about you know, overall affordability in areas like housing. And I, for me, that Mexico City project that we worked on was incredibly telling in that regard. Mexico City came to us with a common problem in many cities, they didn't have enough low income or middle income housing in the city. And much of the new housing that was being built by developers was higher income, and they didn't understand what was to be done. And and in hearing that, I think a common response by many folks who work for cities is to point the finger at developers, right, and scold them for not doing enough here. But you know, developers aren't bad people as much as they're made out to be the boogeymen of the cities, right? They have just a pretty clear business model and that they have a 20% hurdle rate on their okay. investments, right? And so if you take that into context of how does a private market work, it becomes a lot clearer. And Mexico City, I think, was expecting us to come back more with recommendations around regulations that are more common in the U.S. So things like inclusive zoning where developers get to build higher or more FAR in exchange for a percentage of units being more affordable. It's a pretty common strategy and one that doesn't affect affordability of the overall market though, because it's a small number of affordable units end up getting built through inclusionary zoning. And developers, again, they have a hurdle rate. 
need to make up that money by, you know, increasing the price of their market rate. Charging yeah. More for yeah. Else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so instead of doing that, we turned to data, right? Which is a lot of the context of Elon's book and, you know, a lot of the practices that you've talked about in the MicroMobility podcast and here too, which is you know, going and scraping a bunch of land use data, including measurements from Google Earth and building a pretty big financial model to understand how the regulations affected what developers would build. And we found that their existing regulations, so height of building, distance from street, FAR ratios already restricted any new or little lower income housing from being built because developers couldn't actually make money doing that. Yeah. And so they could actually just adjust and loosen some of those regulations to lead to more development. And so to me, that's, again, a great example of people with the best intentions. You know, I want to be a great builder of affordable housing as a city can make really poor decisions without good data um, and understanding markets and not understand the tools in their toolkit to have that result. And so to your point, yeah. Okay. How did Mexico City respond to that politically? I want to give the context as well. So I'm in New Zealand and we have done probably one of the most radical deregulations of housing supply yeah. that I've seen globally in a very short period of time. So we have the most expensive yeah. housing in the OECD. Yeah. It's grow, it grew 40% in costs last year. It's like absolutely mad. And yet, so what, what's happened is that we've gone remove them of all minimum car parking standards and huge amounts of densification, effectively saying like, yep, we're just going to flood all of our major yeah. cities are effectively where you've got one house, you can build three houses. We don't really care. We're not even going to require a consent around <laughs> this, which is, you know, wonderful and also freaks all the NIMBYs out. And yeah. we're expecting a very significant backlash when it comes to a political process and the next elections around this because there's a lot of people who are just like, oh. And yet it's one of these things where kind of what you were talking about you've had a kind of build-up of particular urban form which is held for so long until you kind of come through and like chop it through and so there's a political capital aspect to that of just like does it have to get really bad and then how do you protect against the downside of that so you can open up and effectively ensure that these yeah. things get delivered yeah you know for mexico city some of the changes and regulations i think are you know a little bit easier than the pushback in new zealand that reminds me of california which maybe I can speak to in a moment but in Mexico City, just based on the urban form, all of the affordable housing was being built basically so far from the center of the city. Any kind of new development was going there. The transportation system is under-resourced. They've tried to put in BRT lines to kind of speed up transportation access, but time from home to job had been dramatically increasing. And so this kind of change provided a really necessary release valve, right, in a way that felt I think, more palpable and desperate, I, I would say, than maybe what was happening in New Zealand versus where I think of other places that have loosened regulations. I think similar to New Zealand, California has gone through a lot in terms of accessory dwelling units, ADUs, right, and allowing yep. for those. Yep. And that's where they've had huge nimbious pushback. And I think the history you could probably do an entire episode of this podcast on the history of single use, single family zoning laws in cities, because it's vast and complicated. Yeah. And in the U.S. in particular, single family zoning laws are actually really grounded in a pretty racist history for a single family. Zoning in the U.S. is done in Oakland, California, as part of racial covenants. So essentially looking to prevent black families from moving into a predominantly white family area. And 
Oh, yeah. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Disappointing. <laughs> Regulation, yeah. Regulations have these really yes. horrible histories to them. <laughs> Another book I would yeah. recommend for folks too is one called The Color of Law, Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, which is focused on regulations mm. at a multiple levels of government. And as someone who grew up in the South side of Chicago, where I saw very transparently how local government had made decisions about where to place transportation infrastructure and not is really eye-opening to me in terms of the not only local government decisions, but state and federal kind of collusion in a lot of those decisions as well. And so I think tightening that kind of loosening of regulations is important. One area that California tightened regulations on, though, was around related to this ADU process was around timeliness. So if you apply to have a permit to build an ADU, the government is required to give a response within 60 days. So that's where I actually think a tightening of a regulation can be good, where it supports how the private market works, right? So we want to build more housing and we want to make sure that lengthy government processes don't get in the way. So let's put you know, a tightening in terms of response time. Another area where I think regulations can be effective is at like a very high macro level. And so I think about those things in terms of climate related regulations. And when you look at, you know, Mm, maps of where climate related policies are put into law or remain as policies in the mobility space, I think one interesting area is in the Netherlands where the Netherlands set a zero emissions law on delivery and urban logistics. So they did that in 2021. It affects about 30 different cities. They offered a lot of incentives. So they said, you know, we'll fund you. I think it was around $6,000 for, you know, leasing electric mobility devices. We'll help you if you need kind of larger trucks, install charging infrastructure. We want to encourage you to do things like urban consolidation centers and things like that. And the market is actually producing those things that previously were considered less relevant. And so I think that there are benefits to having kind of top level objectives, right? But not regulations that exist at a level of, you know, how tall you can build one building. <laughs> Specifics, yeah. Totally. This is the setback you need to right. have on your petition, and you need to have three car parks. Yeah, per yeah. And, 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 and oh, you can build in yeah. like commercial here, and you can only build residential here, but I want to have a 15 minute city, right? Like the, those things don't yes. connect, right? So, another area of too tight zoning are things like, you know, just some of those zoning law distinctions between commercial, industrial, residential. I love this. I want to ask because, in some ways, like, it's felt like this has been very inaccessible and or for, for the voter population, like the, the, in general, yeah. when you think about these things like zoning laws or whatever, or even like getting into a more nuanced conversation mm-hmm. is oftentimes really challenging. And yet that is where I feel like we ha- now have better tech processes to be able to facilitate these sort of things. And I, I wonder, you know, the challenge that I can see is that as tech evolves and people, for example, get new technology, they put it into a city and it starts to enable new things. Like cities themselves are like not oftentimes quite linear institutions. They're not as fast as responding at sort of the capability that might exist. And you can see it in a very practical way with like, you know, councillors end up arguing more on Twitter than they do in the actual debate halls of city government because they're getting absolutely slammed on all sides by a bunch of kind of, some of them are educated, some of them are not and whatever. So I'm kind of curious, I'm thinking more like engaging engaging public consultation processes, et cetera, like, are there ways that you can see that tech could really enable and enabling of us to be able to speed up those processes to allow this flexibility that, yeah. that we're kind of talking yeah, I, about? Yeah, I definitely agree. And those comments 
on, you know, the Twitter battle for council members surely resonates because it's really hard in those Twitter conversations to understand, is this a lone voice, right? Or is this representing a constituency? And if it represents a constituency, what do I do about it? And so, yeah, certainly. Mm -hmm. Or is it just some random person from who's been paid yeah. off in some random place to just, <laughs> you know, really throw spanners in the works, right, which is, right. you know, a real thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think that in general, micromobility is certainly a space that I think about how do you encourage tech in good ways through this? Because we're micromobility is fighting against a legacy of kind of car dominance in cities, right? And so through great public-private partnerships, like we were talking about earlier, thinking through other ways, you know, in other cities to think about some of those even frameworks for public-private partnerships, I think is top of mind. So you know, having clear expectations, frameworks. So whether that's the framework that we use and think about a lot, which is station density, transit connections, public infrastructure, or if it's something else. And then secondly, to your point, having clear community engagement processes that are enabled by tech. So those few loud voices don't dominate. So I think of groups like Zen City, for example, that, you know, are really kind of helping aggregate a lot of those, do localized polling, show representative samples in ways that are effective. And then there's other things that, you know, procurement is always sounds like the most boring word, <laughs> yes. but it is actually really important to cities. I think that there's a staggering stat to what we were talking about before in terms of, hey, we need to figure out a way of like better working with government and, you know, government in turn than finding ways of working with the private sector. The Rockefeller Foundation found that for one urban category alone, infrastructure that 75% of urban infrastructure needed in 2050 does not exist today. So that includes climate, flooding areas, mobility needs, and others. So it's an enormous market opportunity and an enormous need within cities. Mm. And so whether that's people are coming at it from a climate tech perspective, mobility tech, you know, urban tech more broadly, but unfortunately, a lot of those procurement processes can be pretty opaque today and cities struggle to also then comply with supplier diversity requirements and others. And there's other starts in the space that I think are doing really interesting work there too, like City Mart and Urban Leap, where, for example, Urban Leap will allow cities to have never procured something before to learn from other cities that have. And so, you know, what are the requirements that you use? How did you evaluate? You know, who did you select and why? And easily exchange knowledge and information. And so I think a lot of that is pretty important and essential when we think about how we both create the frameworks that enable technology and then procure technology to support and solve some of these larger urban problems. Yeah, I mean, there's a far wider conversation there around how can governments be more enabling for startups because oftentimes they, uh, the startups that I've worked yeah. with when it comes to working with governments, it's like, I understand your need for some sort of like consistency and, you know, the, the company itself is well established and set up, but it's like, yeah. For a lot of them, it's just a really long time frame, and they, they're oftentimes operating on timescales that don't work for startups, and there's yeah. a, just a mismatch there. And so it's a question of how can you enable those government procurement processes to be able to be right. faster and more responsive right. and be able to support startups. Yeah. And that's a rewriting of procurement, <laughs> right, oftentimes from a federal or state or whatever law that right. it's very challenging for any startup. Like yeah. you cannot intervene at that yeah. point. Because um, if a procurement process is a year, that might be longer than my runway, <laughs> right? And so- Yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I think a lot about that in the micromobility space because obviously that's where I come from, but it's very challenging. Like this timescales are, are really mismatched. 
we are unfortunately going to we're like we're run up against time i have like a whole heap more questions so what i'm going to try and do let's see if we can do like a round two on this at some point soon we'll be able to circle back because you're just so, yeah you're a wealth of knowledge and as i mentioned fascinating like you've just kind of got the the whole intersection of all of these things coming together the one part that we haven't touched on is obviously crypto and i'd love to get into that at mm. some point with you and just think about the yeah. you know what does what a new funding mechanism starts to look like what does it look like when you're not actually dealing with companies but you're dealing with sort of yeah. wider but incentivized individuals yeah. um, to be able to do things yeah. in cities. I, I think the crypto is definitely interesting as kind of distributed platforms but then i also think that you know the models that we see evolving on more venture debt and debt structures in general to support fast growing startups are also incredibly important. So rather than taking pure equity, right, I can instead take debt through groups like Pearl Street or, you know, even larger banks are getting to this space, right? Like a Goldman Sachs for Tier or BlackRock for Rebel and others to say, how do we do asset financing yeah. right in a way that makes sense for a startup to scale that does have complex hardware and operations associated with it. And so I think that there's a lot of compelling models yep. out there when you think about assets for startups and then infrastructure writ large for cities is also quite fascinating. Yeah. Hey, well, thank you so much for your time, Laura. It is yeah. an absolute Thanks, pleasure to have you on. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I'm looking forward to more of these conversations. So thank you. Yeah. If folks want to find you, how would they? Well, I know you're on Twitter. So what's your, uh, what's your handle? <laughs> I'm on Twitter. I am Art and Fox <laughs> on Twitter, <laughs> which is a legacy. Now, now that you all know me, you'll know that it's a legacy of joining Twitter when I was in back in 2010. <laughs> an yeah. early part of my career, but I've held on to it. Yeah. So it's Art and Fox. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very yeah. cool. Excellent. Okay. All right. Hey, well, thank you as always. And yeah, looking forward to our next chat. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Oliver. It's always such a pleasure to connect and, and talk to you. I find that the topics that you're investigating in micro mobility are always so fascinating for me personally, and just the topics you're planning to explore here. I can't wait to listen. 